0: Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a micro-college in Verroca, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head on. Welcome to MicroCollege. This week our guest is Chris Knapp with the Maine Local Living School in Temple, Maine. Chris Knapp is a father, a homesteader, an environmental educator, and founder of the Maine Local Living School. He has designed and taught experiential programming for grade schoolers to graduate students for over 20 years. He holds a master's in environmental studies from Antioch University New England and is a wilderness first responder and a registered Maine guide. And the focus of our conversation today will be on the Understory uh, program that that, that uh, Chris and Maine Local Living School are running. Um, so thank you for joining us today, Chris.
1: Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on this great podcast that I've been learning about other people's really interesting work on.
0: Yeah, it's it's really exciting to talk to you and to meet you, Chris. Um, so for our listeners, you know, Chris and, and I recently participated in a in a zoom meeting with um, like five other or four other programs of a similar size and scope. Um, we're at all over North America. And uh, really there's a strong feeling, I think of a, of a growing movement that uh, we are colleagues in. And uh, I think it's, it's just really exciting to be a part of it. Um, and this podcast hopefully is contributing to that as well. So if you've been listening to our podcast, Chris, you know, that um, I always uh, like to ask about people's uh, biographies and, um, so maybe you could reflect back on your young adulthood or, or knowing a little bit about your story, maybe even a little bit before that um, in high school. What were the educational experiences and the, the influences that uh, that shaped you as a young adult and, and contributed to to where you are today?
1: Great. Uh, so yeah, I, I think if we do you know if we reach back there into high school then, I was immersing myself in learning experiences that were just uh, hiking on the Appalachian Trail, essentially in Maine, and came out with some pretty amazing sort of transformative, unintentional results, which led me to, But well, we won't get into, I don't think we need to go back that far, but I knew from early on that there was something in the woods that was amazing and calling to me and that was just that was really my focus all through high school was what is this piece that's out here what is this other way of uh, sensing time and and uh interesting sort of um supernatural things seem to happen in that context and so i was just super curious and it led me to a uh rather than straight into college um It led me to the folk high school system in Norway. And I chose to attend Fusen Folk High School on the Rissa Peninsula. And that was an amazing experience. I was 17 uh, when I arrived there. And I thought, having spent a lot of time in wilderness through my teenage years, that I knew a bunch of stuff. (laughs) And I thought I was fairly competent. And it was so amazing to realize that I had no idea about anything and so it was like being born again and i realized that there was a body of knowledge out there that i didn't know existed and that knowledge was comprised of um traditional ecological knowledge in that place where i was the sami people being um the first people there as well as the cultural knowledge of the old norwegian farming community and all of those skills and to some extent, they were really still being represented at this little school, the folk high school there, and uh, it was just an ex- a very inspiring year for me to dig in. And st- I was staying up late at night, tanning hides, and sewing mittens, and carving bowls, and going on long trips by myself. Um, I I think that I'll you know it'll be a little just like a little bit about who I am is that at that time in my life, the earth was really what was talking to me and I wasn't aware and it's maybe I'll be a little sound, a little stupid. And so make myself vulnerable here, but I wasn't aware of the importance of human interaction and community. The earth was calling me so clearly that that was, I just put all my energy there and it wasn't that I didn't make friends in Norway, but when I think about that year, I think about the 10-day solo I did over Easter break and and the eight-day solo I did over Christmas break. And I think about all those interactions with the place and the wind and the sound of the spruce trees. And that was what was leading me on. And so I left Norway with a vision, really. I had a vision of a future because this type of learning and and realizing that there was a whole life way out there was um, magnetic for me. And so... I remember uh, hiking down from Blauheil, this sort of high treeless hill towards the school, maybe the day before I was going to leave and sort of framing this world that I was going to re-enter when I came home, that I would find a piece of land, that I would find a mentor, that I would continue this learning journey. I would learn everything that there was needed to know and then start some kind of educational initiative in five years you know, a completely unrealistic timeline. (laughs) And uh, just beautiful sort of like inspiration. I was 18 at that point and feeling the world. But what ended up happening was when I returned, um, I did find a mentor and he pointed me in the direction of another mentor. And I, I lived on his land. It was a little wilderness school in Brunswick, Maine. And I did build a birch park wigwam there and was living there. And I remember my hands were digging roots and weaving baskets and and I felt very uh, you know, I remember speaking with my father about the upcoming school year I was planning to go to be a freshman at College of the Atlantic and which was a great opportunity and I remember feeling like wow I'm just in another world than the one I grew up in and you know, the time scales had shifted and I felt this sort of calmness almost like a female quality inside of me doing all this handwork and earthwork and weaving work which I guess if we look, you know, if we look at ancestral um, traditions often are female, not that we live in that world right now. I I really, we're moving beyond that. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was that feeling inside of me and college looming. And I did go to school. I went to College of the Atlantic and I love the school and I love the educational community, but that same year, the man who I'd been learning with, apprenticing with that summer, he said, oh, you should go meet this old timer, Ray Wrightsey, because I think you would really just resonate with who he is and what he has to share. And so I said, all right, I'll do that. And I, I showed up there and we were heading up to the sort of a little north of where we are here in Maine, where you're right on the border of Canada. And there's a, a section of wilderness, which is all um, paper company land. So it's, it's public access, but it's private land and he was building ray was was building a structure almost exactly like i had learned from the sami people except it, the the design the understructure was cree and so there was at that time i was just really interested in all the different ways that people had found to live in our bioregion and i was so excited to see this parallel and i helped build that structure but mostly what i did that week was listen to his stories and I was sitting around the fire and I was hearing his stories. And when Ray was a boy, really like a little boy, nine years old on the back of his family's farm, there was living an elder from the Mi'kmaq people. And this elder had walked all of North America in this time of real like just cultural disintegration and hard, hard time and had settled in Buxton, Maine. And he took on Ray as a, really a student in, in all ways around nine. And, and he taught him until he left, you know, this earthly existence sometime when Ray was in his late teens. So I started hearing these stories about the way he had been sharing knowledge with Ray and Ray was sharing those stories with us. And, and I thought, wow, like this is the person who I will learn from. And he was so real and so quiet. And so um, just humble and, and really happy, like had a light in his eyes that you don't see in everybody's eyes, the complete sort of peace, happiness. And I, I think more than anything, as a kid growing up in modern America, I recognized that as unique. And I thought, what is that? And I knew I wanted to spend time with them. And so that began a six year apprenticeship and was really a transformative learning experience for me as well as a doorway into the teaching work that we're doing
0: now beautiful yeah there's so many rich parts to that story really it's, it's one of my favorite answers to this <laughs> to this question that i've asked i think um because there's so many pictures and so many characters in it um I, the, the sense i get you know it's something that has come up in, in many people's answers to that question are travel um but also like the key People or, or or individuals, and something that comes up in your in your materials on your website and, and talking about the program you're doing is is this word apprenticeship, right? Of which I think is is it feels like an old concept as well as a a, a, re, a concept that's really ready to be revitalized and reborn in some ways. And I guess can you when you use that term, um, you know, from your own experience and also what you're trying to build there, what does that mean? What is what is the the you know the the master apprenticeship relationship? Um, What is it? What is it like?
1: Mm. Well, in my in my life, the way it played out was there was a master, if you will, who who held a set of skills that I was seeking. And really more than that, held a worldview that I was seeking to understand. And uh, and none of those things come quickly. And so an apprenticeship is a learning situation that can be built over time. And sort of the working agreement of apprenticeship, in my mind, is often that it's work exchange. So there's an element of helping somebody in whatever capacity they need, you know, whatever versus an educational experience where the educators are designing a situation that's going to be amazing. It's going to be, you know, what is going to bring about uh, a transformative learning experience for the students, but it might not be what they actually needed to do in their life that day. Right. Whereas apprenticeship is about you're just there. So, you know, we helped him. uh, And I say we uh, because there's another element to this story, which is that Ray had an apprentice who was a young woman who found him at 15 when her father hired him to lead uh, a river trip. Because Ray was a main guide at that point, just doing classic guiding. But he couldn't just do classic guiding because there's all this wealth of knowledge and beingness inside of him. And so, anyway, so she was there, and we ended up getting married. So <laughs> she's in the house with me right now, and that's Ashira. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, so we helped Ray with whatever was going on. We would certainly lead trips with him, and that was like you know a real joy, that kind of work. But also just whatever you know, if he was building or mocking out compost or doing whatever, that was what we did.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's I think it, I sense a real hunger from a lot of young people for that type of relationship, right? There's there's ways that um, that that that's that's not doesn't happen that much in, organically in our culture. Um, I guess another thing that comes out of your story are you know uh, relationships between you know indigenous people or people who have a long traditional history of working with the land or particular bioregion or, or skills whether that's the Sami in Scandinavia, or the, the Mi'kmaq, or you know, Cree in, in your region there, um, and, and people who are not from those backgrounds. And that can be a delicate kind of dance. You know, they're, they're, these, are, these, are, you know these are life ways that have been preserved for thousands of years and um, under a lot of pressure. Um, how, how do you think about that um, as a person who's talking about indigenous skills and, and life ways, and, and also perhaps sharing you know, what you've learned with other people? Yeah.
1: That is a huge question. So in and and it's great that we cover it and talk about it. When I started learning and just going down this rabbit hole, I was completely unconscious of the cultural sensitivity that is necessary to navigate these fields. And in a way that was beautiful because I just was learning. And, and, and I really revered the knowledge I was learning and the source of the knowledge. I wasn't in any way trying to say, hey, I thought this up myself. You know, I was just really excited to learn from people. And I, I um, in that time of my life, as, as today, I uphold a lot of um, traditional land-based cultures as people who hold understandings that are critical for, for wise inhabitation of whatever place that we're in. So uh, so in the beginning, I had no knowledge that what I was doing, um, practicing these skills, would be seen as appropriation by others. And the way that we navigate that now is really a philosophical framework that I think in some circles, there's no way we can move beyond it right now. And I'm OK with that. It's like we, we need time because it's so ugly what happened just mm-hmm. you know if we read the chapter uh, last night my daughter and i are reading people's history of the united states and if we read that chapter on on the indian removal act and that time period and just and don't have your heart break anyway it's yeah it's so so. I I have a lot of just sort of openness for saying you know in this lifetime we might need to have a hundred years of people just saying do you realize what happened, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Like maybe we that's maybe that's where we get to in this hundred years, but in the long run, and this is really what I'm interested in. In the long run, um, if we look at human beings inhabiting this planet wisely, there's no way that our life ways will not interact with what we call traditional ecological knowledge. So like for me here in this bioregion in Temple, Maine, um, we've got a certain amount of gifts that we work with. Mm -hmm. And you know, those gifts are incredible. So we have brown ash and we have birch um, and we have Labrador tea and we have spruce and fir and, and each one of these people, these gifts, has certain things that they can give to human inhabitants and there's a relationship that we enter into them when we recognize those gifts and we become in a relationship of reciprocity, not just, you know, not like, Oh, look, there's all the birch trees. I can cut them all so I can get enough bark to make this shelter. It's not like that. Once you see them as a gift, once you see them as a people, then you enter into a a contract and once you grant them personhood, you know, which is something I learned right away from grandfather. Oh, I can hear I slipped up and called him grandfather. So, Ray, at a time in my early childhood, uh, early um, time learning with him, I felt like Ray was a dirty word in my mouth and I wanted to call him something else, something respectful. And the word then was grandfather. And now, because of this, um, because of this framework of appropriation. Again, I don't feel like I can use that word because it is an indigenous framework. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not using that word so much, um, but that is what we called him for years as just a term of respect. Um, but where I was going with that was... Uh, seeing
0: the birch's people.
1: Seeing the birch's people, thank you. And, and once we see them as people, then they, we can't not give them voice, <laughs> which is really what my whole education with him was about, was learning to listen. And once we learn to listen, we're not alone anymore. And we can't like I, there's a lovely poem um, that we have posted up around here. I am ashamed before this. I'm ashamed before the sunrise. I'm ashamed before it, because someone is always watching. So there's a sense as we work in the woods here, which is something we do a lot. We work in the woods. We work with the trees that they're always watching. We, we cannot just go in there alone because we are among a community. So this is a worldview that just plain locked with me. I inhabit it. I can't not inhabit it. And my ancestors are European. And so there's a lot of tension there. I'll just name it like there's a lot of tension there. I don't know the way through other than we're opening in any way that we can with the Wabanaki community to say you know, do you want to use this space or, uh, just reached out to a basket maker? Would you like to teach the pack basket class that we have taught for years? Because it feels like it's more yours than mine. You have 12,000 years relationship with this tree and I've got, boy, it's been a really meaningful 20, but it's just 20. (laughs) It's just 20. And so I think it's going to grow and it's going to slowly, slowly, slowly shift. But the alternative which Maine is a pretty volatile community as far as people not wanting, uh, you know, um, European people of European origins to practice traditional knowledge. It's fairly, it's not, it's different in different parts of North America, mm-hmm. um, but here it's quite. Um, it can be quite hard to navigate, and I know that um, in the long run, if we if we persist in a way which is which is really uh, respectful it's the only respectful to the place itself to you know to the gifts of this place itself that is the only way forward there is no alternative that somehow like somebody said to me well what if you just don't do anything that the Wabanaki people did and I said well I would be I, I, I wouldn't be able to live here because they lived in many ways in very wise ways with the with the bioregion that we inhabit and we inhabit the same space. So the alternative then um is walmart which isn't an alternative that's not a long-lasting alternative
0: <laughs> those are our life ways right
1: <laughs> yeah but also i would say that what we do i really feel like it's a celebration of everything so yeah. like when i sharpen up my austrian scythe and i go mo i don't feel like i shouldn't be doing this because i'm not from austria i feel like wow these smiths who figured out how to make this piece of metal with this certain temper hold an edge at this thinness that we peen out is true master mastery, and I just celebrate that and I say thanks and I go moan, and I feel the same way when we plant the three sisters—corn, beans, and squash. I say, wow, you know, the indigenous scientists who bred this polyculture, who selected over thousands of years these people to be so, um, you know, interdependent, so nourishing, and so adapted to this climate. We just got to celebrate that. And that's what I think the true roof, route forward is for all of us is, is this um, spirit of celebration yeah. rather than the fear
0: of appropriation. Yeah. Beautiful, thank you for that deep dive. And that that obviously so many urgent like topics wrapped up into that, something that we've been talking about and thinking about here at Thoreau College as well. Um, and yeah, so it's that's, that's, that's really rich. Um, I'm wondering if we could step back for a second. You've given us a little bit of a flavor of your place, but we really see a core part of of a micro college as as we're coming to define it It is It is place-based. So could you give us just a little bit of a a portrait of of Temple Main and the region in which you are located?
1: Great. Yeah. Um, So Temple's a tiny little town that has gotten smaller, really. If if we look at the recent history, you know, there was more people here in 1850 than there are now. Our nearby town is eight miles away, Farmington, Maine, which is a university town. So the University of Maine at Farmington is there, which is a teacher's college, um, among other disciplines. And and that's been a great resource for us to interact with uh, the university there. And we're situated sort of geographically, we're situated really in the foothills of what becomes the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So it's the Western mountains of Maine and um, there's a 4,000 foot peak, just about five miles to the Northwest of us as the crow flies. Mm -hmm. And then that humps into another little set of mountains. And then eventually you're sort of building into what becomes um you know what we call a very colonized name the presidential range um we shouldn't really be naming these mounds after these guys but that's where we are in in our culture right now Mm -hmm. um yeah so what else about this place um i would say uh like the community just down by farmington there is a beautiful river called the sandy river and so the sandy river is bordered on both sides by alluvial soil floodplain soil and has for uh you know since the last ice age been farming ground for first peoples here Mm -hmm. so there's a long indigenous story in this place and the place where we settled way up sort of (laughs) in the hills um is super rocky and nobody would have been stupid enough to farm here, <laughs> you know. Um, but that's where we're at because these are different times and we work with what we have.
0: Yeah. So that that the combination of being able to to do some 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 agriculture as well as you know woodcraft of different kinds. Like that's that it's hard to find a place to do both of those in a way that's that's really they're suited to the site at this time year in history. Mm-hmm uh, yeah. So, can you talk about more about your specific site? I mean, you you describe your location as a homestead. This is where you live. How long have you been there? What what what's what's going on on the site?
1: Okay. So, we came here in 2004, and um, the whole site that is the home of Maine Local Living School was wooded. There, the northern edge of the property was cut over a little bit harder than where we are but there was really a lot of intact forest and of course intact forest in maine you should know means there's been three or four significant cuttings Mm -hmm. so we're not talking about virgin forest but intact meaning you know there's there's beautiful mixed hardwood here where some of the trees are over 100 years old and Maine is a lumbering state and so that's rare. And usually when large parcels of land are for sale in Maine, they are for sale because they've been cut hard. Mm-hmm. So people cut and then sell. Mm-hmm. So this land has a lot of gifts in that way that we've got um, great diversity. There's, there's the upland with mixed um, hardwood, a lot of sh- sugar and red maple and we do um, have a nice sugaring operation every spring. But also, there are sections of lowland with cedar and brown ash and more of a bog ecosystem, um, some small sections of hardwood, and still, even after all that cutting, some beautiful pine that we watch towering above everybody else. And they are, you know, really just 90, 100 years old. Um, and pine, as I understand, can live to be a thousand years old. So we're looking at babies. It's good to always sort of have that worldview that we're, when we walk out into the forest, we're sort of walking out into the kindergarten classroom and hold in mind that potential. Yeah. Um, I
0: remember for sure.
1: Yeah. And so we started here uh, with a lot of, you know, sort of inner thoughts and questions about, is it right to be developing this site somewhat for agriculture, or to be cutting trees and planting other trees, you know, to cut, cut forest to make apple space for apples and nut trees and things like that, and for perennial as well as annual agriculture. Um, and uh, yeah, we came to a place where it felt right to do the work that we thought we could um, live here and be a part of. I like to think of a temple. Temple's a beautiful little town and sometimes it's a place where people go to get away from it all. <laughs> and uh, su- you know, there's some summer homes here. And I really think that there's a difference because we came here to work with it all. Mm-hmm. And you know, every every rock that uh, every foundation here is, is from the rocks that are right here. So we started with those um, those bones of the earth and, and built upwards from there with the trees. Uh, things have really grown organically from here. So the center of the school is a five acre clearing which you wouldn't recognize as a clearing because there's chestnut trees and fruit trees and black walnuts and whatnot here and there making orchard space. But there is also um, a lot of garden space that we've developed over time. It's a very slow process here. There's just incredible amount of rock that comes out of the ground. And we've used that rock to build a beautiful root cellar and um, a lot of walls and, um. So that's the space. There's a central building that really is the home for the understory program. And that came about fairly recently. That was 2014 and 15 um, that we built this large octagonal structure. You'll see pictures of it on the website. And um, yeah, I just worked with a bunch of great friends who were skilled woodworkers, in particular, one friend, um, Kent Gagnon, who... Uh, is a just a mathematician and a sort of conceptual genius. He showed up without any plans. I showed him a a, a model, and we started cutting joinery the same day. <laughs> and he's just stayed ahead of us. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, so it's fun to have people like that be a part of the creation story of the place. And um, so over time, we've built you know the structures that sort of maintain and sustain life here. So there's an ice house. A little a little duck pond where we cut ice in the month of February and that ice goes us through November of the year and then uh, in all uh, in, in a <laughs> hopefully you're making ice by November in Maine that I really feel the climate shifting faster than uh, they faster than I can even grasp mm-hmm. um, but we do, we cut ice and that's our refrigeration year round. There is no grid power here, but we do have a little bit of solar power from um, solar panels that feed batteries that run this computer that I'm sitting in front of. Um, there is a subterranean greenhouse where we grow greens through the winter. And, uh, but I always say greenhouses are just, you know, they're, they're dressing oftentimes. They're, they're like the treats, but the real sustenance is about a root cellar for us. So the root cellar holds a vast amount of the food and then the other bit of food is dried. And it's something that we really, I guess we're, we take pride in that, that participants who come here for a semester program or for just a three day immersion, whatever it is that they're doing, they're going to be eating directly from this place. Yeah. And that's something that's always been a part of who I am. Like when I go to the ocean, I want to just get some salt water in my mouth. When I'm climbing in the mountains, I, I want to chew on some, some leaves of, the or some needles of spruce and fir and it's like you're taking in a little piece of that place yeah. in a way and connecting
0: yeah it's something that we um you know, we produce food here at Thoreau college and we strive to produce as much as we can and you know i think that um really to to take on you talk about you know 60 or 70 percent 80 percent maybe of some of the food that's been consumed there is, is yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. I think it's just for, for, you know, um, for students or participants to to recognize how that is, is very powerful. So that's, that's impressive.
1: Yeah. And part of that food system is the wild, which, um, so we, years ago, I started experimenting with acorn. And honestly, a lot of the skills that I have learned have been through experimentation um, mm-hmm. and really not through mentorship. And I was a, I guess, you know, it's embarrassing in a way. I, I was such a late adopter of the internet that up into my early 30s, I didn't, I never had the thought, oh, I can go look that up. <laughs> we didn't have internet here on, you know, all during the the founding years of this place. And it wasn't something that I used or learned to use. It wasn't a part of my worldview. It is now, and I admire it for its endless um, depth of knowledge, but also crap, of course um (laughs) uh but anyway the uh what what was i going before i got off on the internet
0: Um, (laughs) experimentation and uh yeah,
1: yeah thank you experimentation um so acorn um is something that i was experimenting with early on and slowly just developed a better and better system to the point where we can process a couple hundred pounds of acorns a year and really have that be a base of our diet and the diet of participants here, and it's it's such a great tool because you know you sit down in an opening circle, and just start cracking nuts. And everybody knows how to crack a nut. It's just it's like uh, it's just cellular memory. It's what it is to be human. Crack nuts, talk. You begin to open up your heart a little bit when you have something to do with your hands. And uh, and then the next morning, you know, we've we've ground them. We've leached the acorn, which is a process that needs to happen with acorn. And then you have acorn pancakes and immediately there's a real like sense of living into a place in a way that's that's deep. And in the springtime, the wild greens are a big part of the programming. We really, you know, dandelion and nettle and basswood leaves and all these things figure in not as little dressings on top of stuff, but as the bulk of of a meal, which is fun.
0: Yeah yeah that's really rich um i know that from our experiences here foraging and, and all that that wild crafting of foods is something that that really is people get really excited about and adds a lot of just also just the heightens the you know the engagement with the landscape with you know the, if you want to learn the names of the plants understanding yeah. also their their uses and their you know what, what tastes good and what to do with them is, is really you know speeds that process
1: absolutely and it's a doorway into reframing a worldview which really i feel like is the work that we're doing here is 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 reframing how we understand our place in this place and when you bend down and you pick up bread or you bend down and you pick up a salad and you you never planted that or or tended it and there it is it's really this um incredible gratitude that comes about and so you realize it's you know it begins this whole like Gratitude attitude that we cultivate here, and and, and the worldview that we live in a world of abundance and gifts, and of course the the framing that we live within is is often times that we live in a world of scarcity where everything costs money, which is very real. It's I'm not saying that that experience isn't real because um, we all experience it, and um, but I also think that if it's possible to open our eyes to the abundance that's there and then begin working with it as in, with our creative powers that we can multiply that abundance and 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 in so doing reframe a worldview a relationship to place
0: yeah yeah so before we go too much farther here i, I wanted to to give you a chance to just to really introduce the understory semester um so you write on the website this is a this is a nine-week uh program um targeted of ecological living and emergent immersion for thinking thinkers doers and change makers so can you start by um so this this idea of the, of the understory can you can you kind of frame that for us and there, what's the image that you're working with there
1: right the name yeah um yeah the understory there's sort of a, a double entendre there there's um so the understory is the story of trees that are coming up through the overstory, if we're looking at the forest structure. Um, And so I do feel like working with young adults right now, people, you know, in their sort of late teens, early twenties or even mid twenties, we have a generation of people who are coming up through and I find they understand things already that, I didn't learn till my 30s or this is sort of an interesting, you know, sort of um, shift that's happening, I think, with with consciousness,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: is exciting. Um, so the understory is are those people coming up through. But also there's this idea of the story under the story, which is something also that's really important to us here, um, which is this question of, you know, why does the world look the way it does? And to really ask that, and to really, when you ask that implicit in the question is the thought that the world could look different, which is like a relief or an explosion of creativity, however it lands in you. Um, But the thought that the structures that we've made, the relationships that we've built with other humans and with um, with our ecosystem, didn't all need to shake out the way they did it was one way that things shook out and so there's a story under that that explains why it is that we are in this moment and so that understory is very interesting to me and 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 then the consciousness of that story i think frees us to choose a, a different story moving forward
0: yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting framing of what you're doing. So, yeah, maybe can you you just, yeah, how, what's, can you describe the, the program uh, for us? What, what happens in the, in the understory semester?
1: Yeah. Uh, so this spring, um, it's, of course, very connected to the seasons. And, and um, we have been, I'll just back up a tiny bit and say that for years, we've been offering an apprenticeship program. And that's been a meaningful part of our work. And, um, and also it feels that we're at a moment as educators where we want to dig deeper into the questions than the apprenticeship really honors. And so creating a cohort of people who really wanna to learn together, um, there needs to be more than work exchange because I'm spending hours and hours developing curriculum and planning classes even if you know if that class happens while we're working in the woods it's still a class that has a reading associated with it that has a discussion associated with it that has some questions associated with it um and so the understory is the growth of the apprenticeship into a more formal um learning experience Mm -hmm. and um the length isn't a fixed item like this year we can work with nine weeks because we're also doing a month for croca expeditions their winter semester will be living here the month of april so we can't start earlier but in the future i envision it will be a 12-week program three months um so just to name that that the length isn't any sort of rigid thing and so there's three components to the program and one of them really is the, is the homestead. So I just could speak to that. And, and another one is, is the community building element. And that's within, you know, this space, the, the people that are living here tightly together, making it all work, but also extending outwards into um, our relationships with neighbors and with the town of Farmington and the school systems of Farmington. Um, yeah. So, and then the the third component of that program is the inquiry, so the homestead, and and we we do this as educators, we we try to like make um, to put things in boxes and differentiate, <laughs> and, and the reality is that they flow together mm-hmm. um, in so many interdisciplinary ways that it is hard sometimes to know what you're doing and what's what it falls under, and within within inquiry we do divide into three sort of core subjects too. Um, Right now, the program is not accredited, and that's definitely um, something that we're reaching for. And because I would love for people to be able to leave here um, a little farther on their path um, as far as higher education. So you know, we're, we're seeking an affiliation with the, with some kind of institute of higher learning, much like you have done at Thoreau College, um, so that you can grant that credit, which I think is critical because also we represent an alternative model of learning. And for that model to be recognized within the credit bearing system is important. That's part of cultural shift. Mm -hmm. So that's important, but we're not there yet. Um, And I think if we think about the program, what would be good to... The homestead itself is, is an experience of being fully supported by the earth which is like a worldview shifting thing. It's like, Oh, wow. It's not just food. It's not just a local food movement, but, but all the buildings and, and, um, and the energy, all the energy that we're using And, and students are involved in the relationships that provide that energy, you know, going out into the forest and thinning the forest and coming up with cooking wood and heating wood and also doing the, you know, the funky stuff we do with like rocket stoves to make outdoor cooking. We make rocket stoves out of trash and recycled parts and make our cooking super efficient. Um, But there is this sense of being held by the earth. And that I think is the shifter that allows us to say, wait a minute, but if this is real, then why is all of that real? Mm -hmm. And so it gives you the experience, gives you a platform from which to really question the rest of what we see going on. But more than that, it gives us an alternative outcome, which is empowering. So, you know, I I really feel like there's this cycle of uh, when you see part of the gig of the homestead is just that anything that you want to create, the the assumption is that the parts are already here. So whatever it is that we need to do, the assumption is that somehow with our creativity, we can do it. So there is that element and which brings in this possibilitarianism, this is like, "Mm, well, you know, if 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 the goal is to enrich soil and um, and we know something about carbon capture and we know something, we have all this brush that we fed to the goats and we can make biochar and soak it in urine and and mimic the work that was done in the Amazon. You know, like maybe there's a way <laughs> it's, it we don't exciting. have to go and
0: get a bunch of guano from South America or something like that right
1: exactly so it's gonna be um that's something that I just love about this space as a learning lab is that the homestead engenders this sense of possibility mm-hmm. and and beyond that a sense of um what we call active hope which is a framing of Joanna Macy and It just feels very important uh, right now in this moment where the science tells us what the science tells us to know that hope, it doesn't matter if we can't have it because we can practice it. And as a living practice, it becomes to take root inside of us and feels really energizing and regenerative. And so that idea that through the work of say, turning all of our human waste into rich soil, there's this sense of, okay, I did something today (laughs) that that was really real. And and it made the world a little bit richer. And we start multiplying that outward with all of our small actions. And there is a real sense of agency and a sense of what we call this this active hope. Mm -hmm. So that's a framing for sort of the work, why this homestead is so important. It really, like production itself, see, we're producing a lot of goods here, a lot of food, also a lot of lumber. We have a little sawmill, and um, but also we tan the goat hides, and turn their skins into things, and make drums, and so that we produce a lot of things, and production is a form of protest. So, you know, production itself is a political statement, and I think that's important, too, and empowering, because we have a lot of people working um, in activism right now, young people who are drawn to activism, because it's so obvious that the world we live in is so unjust, and they burn out. Yeah. And so um, I, I like to ask sort of, or to think about the framework that, yes, we need activism, absolutely, we need somebody saying this must stop. But we also need a whole bunch of other people saying this is what it looks like once we stop.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's so powerful. I mean, I, I see you're offering a grounding, right? You know, there, there there's kind of a foundation from which to build up of. We definitely have seen in our students who have been attracted to Thoreau College um young people who are who are exactly the activists that you're talking about. They've gone through a whole cycle of protesting in the streets or or yeah. you know, protesting the you know, the pipelines, things like that, and had come to a point where they they are they're burned out from that and they they can't see the way forward. And instead, you know, they they are looking for a place to. To put their hands in, in in the soil to to know how to to do things practically manually in a way um so what i what i'm what i'm hearing is that you've got you're building a program that is engaging you know in all of these experiential ways with the homestead with the land with the forest um and that the inquiry then arises from that right so where, where do you go you know you, these i imagine having similar experiences conversations arise as you are Canning a hide, or you're you're you know you're 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 putting things in the root cellar or whatever. But then, where do you go from that? you, is there readings built into this? Do you have how how do you how do you proceed with the inquiry?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's readings, and I've found that it's working well. And in the the context of what we do, sometimes there's some task which is fairly quiet, like like cleaning seeds. Mm -hmm. To have one student reading, and the rest of us are are just working and listening. Um, but also there's time to just read, you know, you don't always have to be productive and, um, yeah. So readings, and then we use the journal. We have a daily structure, which has developed over the years that works, that works well, where there's, um, in the morning, well, we have a lot of belief in the importance of quiet and listening. And so we create space for that. Um, so spending time, uh in what could be called a sit spot or a meditation spot except it's not meditation going inward it's it's really about looking outward at what's happening in the earth community and just being very um cultivating our sense of attention Um, so that's a daily practice in the morning as well as chores so chores are a daily practice that keep this homestead running and so we all have we're building this interdependence and it takes everybody to do the work, milk the goats and split the wood and, and, you know, get the water and make the fire and make breakfast. And all of that is happening sort of as a group working together. Um, And so that morning quiet time and then chores, and then we have breakfast and then um, we often do a morning meeting uh, which will be, After, um, just before morning meeting is when we do journal time. So there's some kind of a prompt from a reading that we've done and people will write. And so then when we circle for morning meeting, there's a chance to share out about that reading that was from a previous day or notes that were made. Um, And then there's the morning block, which is whatever it is, um, uh, work and learning on the land and, and then the afternoon can go either direction. It can be a time when we delve into um, like a personal learning project. So somebody might be really interested in studying uh, one facet of the homestead here and be doing more research on their own. Um, and it might also be continued uh, collective work. There's so much, so much of the, um, the the work really branches into two ways. So one one way is is the work of the homestead, which a lot of learning happens in this way. Like this spring will be timber framing a pole shed. It's really a pole barn. It's you know it's going to be 48 feet long, but it's only 16 feet deep. So it's an open face structure. Um, so that's just work. But there's so much work that about like learning to use our bodies and be in our bodies and to use tools and to sharpen tools and we start with harvesting so actually be pulling the trees out of the woods and making those decisions in the woods so that's one kind of learning that's sort of directed towards the longevity of the homestead and this campus and then another kind of learning is is about what people want to do with their own creative initiative with their hands so if we're thinking about the hand learning right now not the academic learning um, so then there's projects. People might be doing their personal projects. So in the arc of a day, there's going to be some reading and discussion. There's going to be a block of the homestead type work, as well as a block where you're pursuing a personal um, interest or skill or work that's for yourself or, you know, to give away.
0: hmm. Mm hmm. So an individual project as well as the collective projects that you're engaging in,
1: right? It's important. It inspires a certain fervor <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: inside of people to be built to be making something themselves. Yeah. I mean, this was addiction for me. I I gave myself tendonitis, uh, <laughs> but I think that it is important to connect with that maker inside of us. Mm-hmm. If we really look at human stories, we were, always have been makers, and what I find having worked with people over the past 20 years is that almost anybody when given certain materials and some instruction or lack of instruction depending on what's appropriate in that moment they become absorbed in a way which we don't become absorbed by any other activity that creative process absorbs us in a way that's that's unique and it's almost like it grows a room in your mind that is different um and it's a very peaceful room to inhabit and so we encourage people to be to enter that room and to experience that makerhood (laughs) so we have to make space for it
0: yeah so you i mean one of the themes that emerged from just your, your speaking and your writing is our deep reflections on technology right appropriate technologies regional technologies but also reflections on our kind of digital kind of High tech technologies as well, and I think you, you you've described your your programs as a, as an opportunity, as a space for people to take a really deep, significant kind of break from from the screen world. Can you talk about that, and and what what would have been some of the responses to that from participants in your programs?
1: Um, it's interesting. Say, <laughs> take the model of a short program, like a five day program with high school students. Every time we lead an immersion like that, there are a number of students whose minds are blown that they are for one. Okay. Still that they haven't checked social media for five whole days and they're still here on earth. But for two that they never realized how, I mean, these are exact words. I did not know how toxic it was in my life. I did not know how, uh, not at peace i was because of that device in my pocket i did not know how i was constantly turning to it for affirmation it's just like a lot of a lot of young people so now i'm talking about high school a little bit younger um where we do these immersion programs but a lot of them have never lived without a phone and so they don't know what that looks or feels like and it's just an opportunity
0: mm-hmm.
1: to be free I, one of our questions i'm really interested in what freedom is Yes,
0: absolutely. That's,
1: that's a question that we, we can dig into, but not right now. <laughs> um
0: but we'll yeah, get out I, right here in the last the last three or five minutes of our, right. of our conversation. <laughs> yeah. 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 So do you find you know the for these longer programs that this is this is you know this is actually something that, that people are seeking out. This is one of the reasons to do this, is is this kind of tech fast kind of component? Um
1: no and i don't think in the longer term so so um and the understory itself is a new program so it's the apprenticeship evolving into the understory and we read we 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 led a two-week sort of mini model this fall Um, but we've also i have been involved in semester education for years so i know what it's like to be with a cohort for five months in a tech-free environment but the understory itself is not about tech fast in those words. Like Mm -hmm. if somebody's really interested in something and the internet is an appropriate resource in that moment, they can come to the office and use the internet. There is, it's sort of a blessing that on site here, there is no signal. So even if you had a phone, you can't access the web through your phone and you can't receive or make a phone call. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have, and satellite internet for the office here. Um, But I wouldn't say that it's a fast and I wouldn't say that we're Mm anti-technology. I do like your your use of the word appropriate technology. And there are certain high-tech parts of our world that have proved themselves to be extremely valuable. Um, We have these little solar hot water heaters that are thermosiphoning units. There is no pump, there is no moving parts, there is no electricity and they're phenomenal.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And they store hot water. Um, But in that way, too, like the Internet has its place overall in the arc of a day, it's going to be way less tech than modern humans are used to. And I think that is good. And there's a real freedom that comes from it when you when you have that experience. Um, And so, yeah, phones aren't aren't a part of the place. But at the same time, um, we're not going to take away somebody's cell phone. And if they need to come and make their communications and check their email, then we call it right outside my window here. There's a little stone wall. And this is the Internet cafe because the booster goes out there about 50 feet and people can come and do what they need to do there. Um, This isn't an isolation camp, if if you hear what I'm trying to get at. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's similar, you know, we we of course have uh, picked up the name of a famous New Englander here, the the Thoreau College, mm. uh, and and people, especially people who've read only the first two chapters of Walden will, um, will think he went on an isolation camp experience, right? Um, but I don't really think that's the lesson of Walden, right? He, he's engaged with his community, and he's engaged with his neighbors, and he's engaged with technology and reflecting on it in a way, you know, about the train, let's say, or about about other technologies in his time, um, but I think this this question about freedom that you brought up before is is so important, right? It, to be mm. free, we need to be aware. We need to make deliberate choices of what tools we use and when. Um, and it does seem like that's that's part of what you're offering your your students is a chance to to take a few steps in that direction. Yeah,
1: and seeing that we're low on time here too, I'm I'm just want to mention that there is this real human component to the work. So. Um, you know, in, in my journey as an educator, I've come to see that we have the power through this work of really rebuilding culture. You could say this is regenerative culture building. Mm-hmm. and And part of that lies in all of our hands and relies upon our willingness to be open to be vulnerable to be communicative to be sharing Um, and the student body here is responsible for those interactions we can't tell somebody how to be we can model ways of being we can ask questions but we also put it into their hands to, you know, to have meetings and to discuss how we are going to live here in this way, get all of this work done, get all this learning done, do all this very physical and intellectual stuff, but do it in a way where at the same time we're creating the world we want to live in as far as the emotional and social element of that life. And that's a big, it's a big work. And, you know, we're, we're always still learning. We don't have it all figured out, but it is, it is an emphasis in the experience. And I think it's an important one.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. The community, the community you're building there on the site there is, is, it it has, it's, it's, it's a major component in that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we are, we're come at the end of our time here, but I wanted to make sure that you are able to can you if people are excited about this how can they find out about it what are what's the kind of timeline for future programs that people might be able to uh to check into
1: yeah so the spring understory is the months of may and june and um that's a really great sort of pivot moment in the seasons and uh and we are enrolling for that right now and uh, you would just go to main local living school website and you'll see the understory there and then there's an application button and um the the program um uh well i don't know if we need to get into all of like yeah we don't need to get into all of it but um we would encourage people to apply i was gonna say that access is something that we're we're very cognizant of, and so there's a sliding scale fee, but there's also scholarships beyond that. And also we are a model right now which relies um, somewhat upon tuition. So we do have to charge for the program. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's um, we've come to a pretty good resting place right now as far as keeping that affordable. And so I would encourage anyone to apply, um, uh, yeah, on that sliding scale basis. And we will be then running again. So this program, The Understory, really, it feels like this is the the keystone program of Maine Local Living School. It's what um, our work has developed into over years and years. And we're excited in a sort of a longer term vision to be able to welcome other teachers into this work and to run two semesters every year. So, and both of those will happen during those shoulder seasons of spring and fall, because those are the critical moments of ecological shift when your livelihood takes place
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and because summer in a way is a type of winter it doesn't feel that way but it's you know there's this old term like laying by time Mm -hmm. when everything's growing but nothing's really getting harvested yet and winter is also this time of rest and repair Uh, but spring and fall is when everything happens and so it makes sense for us to inhabit those spaces with the programming Um, and so this fall there we haven't put out another understory for this fall it's been a question we've been grappling with because we have a steady lineup of starting in april right through september but i think what we may do is is a shorter term in the fall this year and then moving into a schedule of of spring and fall semesters yeah
0: beautiful Chris, thank you for taking the time today to, to talk with us and for your passion and for your work. And uh, I've been really excited to, to learn about it. Thank you.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for, for listening and for your questions. All right.